huge savings on new and previously leased furnishings. That's right, huge savings. At Court Furniture Clearance Center, choose from our wide variety of new and previously leased furniture and decor for your home or office. You'll find sofas from $199.99 and more. Everything in our 9,000 square foot showroom is Court certified, guaranteed, and in stock. Ready for delivery or to take home today. Visit our Chantilly Court Furniture Clearance Center at 13946 Lee Jackson Memorial Highway or go online at CourtClearanceFurniture.com. Mention Radio 20 and get 20% off. From New York City, it's the Todd Berry Podcast. The Todd Berry Podcast. Hey, this is Todd Berry. Welcome to episode five. I think it's five of my podcast. Today, or tonight, or somewhere, twilight, in the twilight, if you're listening in the twilight, my guest is Ari Melber, my first not-at-all comedian guest. It's not just about interviewing comedians. It's about interviewing my one friend who's not a comedian. Have a listen. He's a smart guy, smarter than me in probably a lot of ways. But probably not in all ways, because I'm, I'm quite bright. Hey, everybody. It's the Todd Berry Podcast. I'm Todd Berry. Um, my guest today is from MSNBC, the show called The Cycle. You've seen him on other stuff on MSNBC before he was, uh, I guess it's not cast. Co-host. Co-hosting The Cycle. Uh, Ari Melber, welcome to my kitchen, Ari. I'm very excited to be here. Do you like my kitchen? I always knew that your podcast would be broadcast from a place like this, so it, it feels right. Yeah, I don't have a garage like Mark Marin, so I figured uh, the kitchen. And plus, I don't like leaving to... I don't want to bring this heavy microphone to your apartment. So I make people come to me, and people have been really cooperative, and uh, thank you. Uh, let's talk about where we met. First of all, you're my first non-comedian uh, guest. That's the word I was looking for, guest. <laughs> I don't even know the lingo. I didn't even know what a guest was. Um, you want me to tell a story or I'll tell a story? Why don't you start? It's not a great story. It's no, a little you show. Start, you start and I'll chime All in. Right, it's a little name it's dropping. It's the kind of story that uses a natural New York backdrop, <laughs> but to people outside of New York will seem kind of lame and name droppy. Yeah, I know. Even I'm, in its telling, although that's not really your point. I know. It, I thought about that. But then I realized, you know, we're both in show business. You sort of can't be in show business and talk about your daily life without name dropping, especially when you're at my level. <laughs> See? I say stuff like that. People laugh. It sugarcoats the name dropping. <laughs> uh, it was a Portlandia premiere party. Remember that? Portlandia, yeah, IFC, that's, yeah, that's that is some uh, Fred Armisen. That's some pretty culty name dropping. And um, I saw you, and I, I go, oh, that's the dude from MSNBC, the uh, correspondent I see from time to time. And I'll cut in right here, <clears throat> yeah, because now you get the of my perspective on you, Todd. Was I don't at these parties and in the news, you you get to see a lot of people that you recognize and and even that you like. And my test isn't really whether you like them can't go up to everyone you like, but whether you think you have something to add. And you struck me as someone who's sardonic enough and sort of mad 
sufficiently mad at life that it'd be interesting to come talk to you. So I was thinking of an opener, but I knew that just saying, I recognize you wouldn't cut ice. So I was actually standing a few feet away thinking about what I might say to actually talk to you because I figured you would be fun to talk to. Well, that was your first mistake. (laughs) Had you been more famous um, or more pleasant seeming, I don't know that I would have come up, but someone who is as outwardly negative as you are is going to be interesting to talk to. Wow. So you're saying my complete lack of approachability is what made me more approachable to you. For me. And I don't, I don't have a problem with that because I'm pretty loud and positive. So you're like one of those... Uh, potentially affable. Some people might say I'm affable. Yeah, you're more affable than I am. But I remember I talked to you and I said, oh, I, I, right off I mentioned the time you were on Alex Wagner's show. Mm-hmm. And you were wearing a rather... It was a bold choice for... Because uh, usually you're in a suit and the people you doing what you do are in a suit or a tie or sweater and you were wearing well you were wearing a sweater but it was a pretty it was a little liberace it was kind of a liberace kind of, it had a huge collar it was just and it was just kind of jarring i'm not saying it was not nice i wasn't going for liberace it was an adorned uh snowflake sweater and it was christmas week but i remember and i watched and i was like wow look that's an interesting thing to wear and then alex wagner immediately mentioned the sweater she said something about interesting sartorial choice <laughs> She was pretty supportive. Other people were less supportive. And it is funny about the, in your business, I don't know if if the people use the word genre. Yeah, yeah. I'm not that dumb. uh, No, but I mean, is that a real word or a made-up word? Like, do you talk about different genres of comedy and stand-up? It kind of. It could come up. Yeah. Um, Cable news, on the one hand, you say, oh, well, you have all kinds of guests and it changes based on what's happening. On the other hand, there are these tight genre constraints. One is that um, most guests should be you know, in the suit. And what you realize is, while nobody really cares, if you step out of that constraint without a good reason, I mean, if you're, you know, a nurse in a nurse outfit, obviously that makes sense. But for me, being a guy in a sweater, it didn't play. I got a lot of of negative feedback. A lot. Really? Like from on Twitter? Everywhere. From people in the building, outside the building, on social media. People (laughs) who keep in touch with me who like me were like, dude, I don't know why you thought you could pull that off, but never do it again. I wish there was a way of, in the future, in the podcast, there'll be a way to have an image of the sweater pop up. <laughs> um, I hate to break it to you, but I actually don't think in the future audio will include video. <laughs> really? I don't think that's how the future yeah, works. I know. Ten I years ago, that would you, just be a video. 20 years ago, you told me that texting wasn't going to happen. <laughs> um, when, uh, when you put the sweater on, uh, that morning, were you like, hmm, I am, were you aware you were taking a chance? Yeah, I emailed, uh, I emailed one of the staff of the show, because I was going to be on as a guest, and I said, you know, it's Christmas week, you know, people aren't in the normal news cycle, Congress is out, everyone's on recess, I said, you know, what if I wore this Christmas sweater? And they were like, yeah, sounds fun, sounds fine. I don't think they realized uh, how bold yeah. Sweater was, and it was a gift from my girlfriend. I'd just gotten it that Hanukkah season. For me, it was a Hanukkah sweater. Yeah. Uh, so I was pumped. But no, I mean, that's, you know, it really goes to, you know, nobody, nobody believes that they're into conventional wisdom, right? Nobody really thinks that they're about that, in my experience. Um, but the whole nature of convention is that it's unstated. You don't admit to it, but we socially police each other when we step outside of it in the same way that. You know, it's fine to be shirtless at the beach, but if you try to show up to a meeting shirtless, even your most relaxed, low-key homie will be like, dude, you can't do that. Right. Which is itself 
I was trying to think of an exception to that rule, but who would, well, it doesn't matter. There's somewhere out there, there is a company where you can be sure of this. Is there? I imagine there is. I mean, I would say if it's part of the job, like being a lifeguard, but no, I mean, and that's the thing is like, that, that really goes to how people patrol each other, even though we don't, most enlightened kind of modern Western people, we don't like to think of ourselves as socially controlling other people, but we do. So this, you, is, this is the deep part of no, the like podcast. I love that there's people who tuned in because you're on and are like, they haven't talked about politics once, and we might not. Not until we're done with the sweater thing. <laughs> so you're saying you, the social, no, people policed your wearing of that sweater by tweeting at you. I'm saying, I, I, it's fine. I want to be clear. I don't think, in general, people think of themselves doing that. I do it too, but I probably wouldn't realize it in the moment. In the same way that jokes act to tell certain stories, right? But in the workplace, where people are less funny than, than the average stand-up comedian, a lot of times the work the jokes do is communicate things that we can't say directly. So there's a whole subterranean level of communication that goes on that people, by definition, aren't aware of that's not their primary motivation you make a joke about someone being late to the office because it's funny and then they say well are you getting on me it's not your job to say i'm on time let's say it's a coworker and not your subordinate and you go no it's making a joke and you think in your head you probably were just making a joke and yet a lot of times you're also trying to say something so you're talking about being passive aggressive you know, passive aggressive is an overused term. It is. It's way overused. Especially, it's overused, and it's mis- a lot of misdiagnosis. Yes, there's passive aggressive stuff, but no, I don't think the joke has to be passive aggressive because the joke does two things. It does double work. I was saying your sweater was passive aggressive. <laughs> okay, well, I almost be. never hear that talk. About. <laughs> you rarely hear about a passive aggressive sweater, except on the Todd Barry podcast. <laughs> Um, maybe, is this like one of those local radio interviews where every oh seven God. minutes they have to mention the name of no, the I, show? No, this is one of those local radio shows where they it's hosted by a guy who doesn't know how to host a local radio. <laughs> I just think if you were going to do that, you should have a button where you have either like famous people like Gaffigan and Eugene Merman or just a really souped up voice go like, The Todd Berry Podcast. And you could wow. just hit that button. Well, I will be adding, I will be digitally removing what you just did, <laughs> adding... A bing, bing, bing to it. And uh, you're the voice of my can show. I, I can I do one more? If you want, yeah, go ahead. Coming to you live from the East Village, the Todd Berry Podcast, where losers talk to winners. You being the you're <laughs> loser. Um, so you're a lawyer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> After that, I, it was a good juxtaposition. Yeah, so you're a lawyer. You don't practice anymore, do you? I don't practice anymore. Do you miss it? Well, you were a civil rights lawyer, right? Uh, well, constitutional. I did a lot of First Amendment work. You know, honestly, this is going to sound like a bullshit thing to say. And yes, you can curse. When people ask me, what job would you have if you weren't a comedian? Okay, how often does that come up? Occasionally. <laughs> when you, if you get interviewed by a, a college newspaper, it comes up every time. <laughs> but uh, I will often say, like, civil rights attorney. Civil rights attorney? Seriously. I mean, I don't think I realistically could have done it. Why attorney? I don't see you as a lawyer. I don't see you as a lawyer type, and I mean that in a good way. I don't know. It's just, it's just always interesting. Because it sounds like you're doing something. Like they tell you what they do, and uh, when they defend unpopular people, like, did Mm -hmm. you do that? Did you defend, like, the Klan when they wanted to march or something? I I didn't defend the Klan, but doing First Amendment work, you do have cases that really test, you know, strongly competing values. I, for example, was on a legal team that represented a journalist who was being threatened with jail time if he didn't give up his sources 
in a prosecution of a former CIA agent who was accused of a range of bad things, including, you know, jeopardizing the national security of the United States. So when you get those kind of cases, some people go, oh, yeah, freedom of the press, First Amendment. A lot of people are inclined to say that sounds like the good side. But a lot of people are also inclined to say, no, it sounds like you're on the wrong side because we should err on the side of getting all the information we can about going after what they believe to be a, a bad accused, uh, you know, potentially treasonous former government official. Um, and so depending on who you talk to, people think you're doing the Lord's work or you're evil or you're aiding and abetting the enemy. Uh, and I do think a, a lot of constitutional questions turn out that way because they're competing values. And, and the founders knew that. And that's why they set up certain roadblocks, uh, because they knew that we would, whenever you throw down the national security card, it's not just the First Amendment. Run over the Fourth Amendment. We should be able to search everyone anywhere because it's going to keep us safer. Uh, there's a lot. There's a lot of rights you can run over when you when you've got a security mindset, like the uh, this random frisking on the subways. Yeah, I mean, look, stop and frisk. Is that what stop, that's, that's stop, stop and, frisk? and frisk is one that's used a lot in New York and has been used uh, predominantly to stop African American males between the ages of about fourteen and twenty five. Uh, and a lot of people think in a in an unfair way. In fact, the Center for Constitutional Rights, which is a place I worked, but it was before I went to law school, so I was working there at a different capacity. They're currently suing Bloomberg over that issue and looking in particular at the way that the policy seems to have been applied based on race. And if they can prove that, they can prove that that would be unconstitutional. That would violate the 14th Amendment. Um, but other people would say, look, Bloomberg brought the crime rate down. I don't agree with that as the ultimate Exception, but they, a lot of people feel strongly that that's the right way to go. And I, I mean, again, to your question, when you're in those kind of cases, you don't get the luxury of being popular because there's really strong opinions on both sides, right? Because I, uh, I always admired, or was always found it interesting when you hear the ACLU defending the Klan or or Nazi. American Nazi Party wants to march somewhere, and I was like, and I was like, it's free speech, right? But you know why? Why those are the cases that end up testing free speech? Because they're so uh, spicy? Basically, because they're the ones that people actually want to censor. Defending the rights of people to agree with you isn't usually a free speech issue. That's just promotion, right? Someone just says, Todd Berry's great. The government of Todd Berry's like, we're fine with that. And someone says, here's my measured, reasonable criticism of Todd Berry. The government of Todd Berry might be like, you know what? We can live with that. When you get out to these extremes, the Nazi march in Skokie being a, a case where people who are normally more inclined to an open society said, well, that's too much for me, right? Those are the cases that are necessary to test the boundaries. Uh, and it's a pretty well understood line that you can't really go down the road of having the government pick and choose and have the government say, I mean, you, European countries do it differently, but in America, we've generally said the government doesn't get to say, this kind of debate is okay, but this kind of debate goes too far. So what was the most, are you allowed to say the most controversial person to defend? Well, when I was at the Center for Constitutional Rights, part of the work we did, which I was involved with, uh, included what they call habeas petitions, or trying to get people their access to the court, which include accused uh, terrorists and other individuals being held in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. And during that period, which I was there years ago, but it, uh, I was there partly in 2005, 
it was still fairly fresh after 9-11, and a lot of people were very, very skeptical of the notion that lawyers should even be involved in figuring out whether these were the bad guys. The, the, the general mood, including a lot of quote-unquote liberals, was go do what you got to do. I think that has changed a tremendous amount. Anyone listening right now in 2013 would say, oh, gosh, I've heard a lot about closing Gitmo. Uh, I heard that Donald Rumsfeld, we now know in a memo, said that it turned out the majority of people there were not high-value terrorists. Uh, we know the Bush administration released several hundred of the people at Guantanamo. So I, I can say I'm very proud of those efforts. And the people who are bad and guilty should go through the process and, and meet their justice. Um, so when you're a lawyer doing that kind of work or in, your, in an organization doing that kind of work, you know, you, you definitely run into people who are skeptical of that because, again, it goes to that American spirit of, well, are you helping the enemy? Uh, I think we were, to put it in a very movie-like way, I think we were helping America. That's what I believe. By making sure everyone got their constitutional rights protected. Right, which is easy a lot of the time and becomes hard in wartime. It becomes hard when people are afraid. Yeah, it's like when people say, is it like when people say, how can you defend an accused rapist or something like that? Yeah, I mean, I haven't done that kind of law, but I can tell you, and most people who've thought about these issues or been trained in, in a legal setting still think that, yeah, you still need the due process. Uh, so it's a pretty simplistic concern. Yeah. I to say, mean, I've oh, always yeah. understood when people say, how could you do it? But at the same time, I go, well, it's the guy's, the guy's job, and that's the way the system works. And he's not saying, I love child molesters, if you defend a child molester. He's just... Right. And the thing, the, 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 the most interesting thing for me, the most kind of raw part, was I had a legal internship at Manhattan Public Defenders while I was in law school. So you, that's... Physical. That's you go in in the morning, and everyone in New York who got arrested last night who can't afford a lawyer is in a pen, and it smells like piss, and it looks dark and scary and rough, uh, and some people might have been scooped up for the wrong reason. But you know what? A lot of people, if you look at the statistics, might have been doing something wrong, or at least were convicted of it, which in our system means something, uh, or they plea bargain, which happens. Most frequently, but you go in there and you look around and, and, and you know you feel the weight of the justice system, and you feel also that you're talking to people. Some people they look tough, you know, or they say they did something wrong, and now you have to work with them to figure out what's their best route through the justice system. They still deserve counsel. They still deserve the presumption of innocence. Um, but yeah, when you're in there, it's very real and it's very raw. And those are times when, to your point, not about you know, no one identifies. Saying people don't identify with a child molester or someone who's accused of heinous deeds, but you look around there and you also think, well, these are real people. They should get, they're about to have the book thrown at them, right? They should have somebody, one person in this whole system that's actually carrying a duty of loyalty to them because uh, they're going to have a hell of a lot of people and a big system going after them. Too serious for the Todd Berry No, podcast? no, I just feel like I'm, I might be sounding dumb. But I'm really bright, though. That's why I'm really concerned about it. John Barry. Do you ever do... Do you get people asking annoying favors as a lawyer? Like, hey, my landlord's being a shithead. Can, uh, can you write a letter? Um, you get people asking you... Let me answer it this way. A lot of times, people think being a lawyer means knowing everything about the law. And that is not at all what it is. So they'll ask you, what is the law for being caught with an open container in Oregon, my friend has this problem. 
The actual answer is lawyers know how to look up the law. They don't have those statutes memorized. If you practice law in the U.S., you're admitted to the bar in one state. Sometimes there's interstate issues. You have to spend day, sometimes days just researching to figure out what the situation is. And on top of that, you have to give some advice or strategy. Um, so unless you're going to pay someone or someone has the time to actually go do it for you, they're not going to know the answers off the top of their head, which is no different than if you said to a doctor, I got this problem. He'd say, well, yeah, you'd have to come in and we'd have to run some tests and we'd have to go through that whole down that road. So if I ever need someone to write a lawyer, like if I don't get paid for a gig, you're not going to write this letter for me? Well, no. Also, and that's the other thing. Lawyers are restricted. No, because you can't, you can't just have an attorney-client relationship with anyone. Meaning? Uh, meaning you're not authorized to give legal advice unless you agree to represent someone in an attorney-client relationship, which carries certain burdens. I guess that's what loyalty, I'm confidentiality, yeah. So a lot, I'm I mean, asking you to be my lawyer. No, the answer is no. But a lot of times when people ask me for advice, the first thing I'll say is, I can't give you legal advice because you're not my client. We can have a conversation about some common sense things you might want to do. Um, and that's for good reason, in the same way that if you want to see a psychiatrist, there's no halfway psychiatry relationship. There's no halfway pregnant. Like You can have a psychiatrist and they take on the bond of confidentiality and they serve you as a medical professional or they're just some dude at a party that you're talking to. There's no middle ground. And you want the right relationship because you you want them to, to be loyal to you as a client or a patient or whatever. Do you think these sirens are distracting us? I it's doubt they... Cool can, we're talking about the law and all these sirens are going on. I doubt they're... Can you tell are they being picked up? It's just, what is that word I'm looking for? Simpatica or kismet or... Kismet. Is it kismet? Is it kismetian? Um, so if I get fucked over by Booker, don't ask you to write it no. again. Fair enough. Um, but I think in all practicality, if someone's listening, what you want to do with the law is figure out the rules you want to know in advance. A lot of people know a bit about their rights... If uh, they're questioned by the cops, you have the right not to answer questions, right? So you want to learn that stuff in advance because if you ever find yourself in a situation where you want to exercise your rights, you need to be pretty clear on the answer. That's why Jay-Z did a great service with 99 Problems because he has a very famous verse where he talks about what is good law under uh, Fourth Amendment search and seizure, reasonable suspicion requirements and the different standards for searching an open area of a car versus a closed compartment in the trunk. I mean, he goes, you can fire up that verse and he goes through it in some depth and it's broadly true. Do you think he went to like the NYU law library and <laughs> made some photocopies? And- I don't know the epistemology of his oh verses, like how he knows what he knows. I think, but I think he got it right. He was, he what was about the ontology? What about the ontology? Even worse. Yeah. I'm see. I'm bright too. Um, Hmm. He went to Cornell, right? Yep, for law school. Not for the restaurant school? Not for the restaurant school. It's world-renowned. And hospitality, like hotel yeah, school, Yeah, that's right? their whole thing. And they have a, a world-class hotel on site that they practice. I did a show with John Stewart in Ithaca, but at Ithaca College, years Name ago. Name Years ago, before either of us were as huge as we are. What was he like then? Oh, he was nice. We drove there. But I remember we, we drove back the same day. I think they offered us hotel at... I bet. At the Cornell Hotel. Did John Stewart seem glum? Because a lot of comics take on this glum general vibe. No, no, no. He was pleasant. You and Louis C.K. And... Well, we are. It's a miserable, sad, sad job we have. 
making people laugh, traveling, getting handed money afterwards. <laughs> Who would want to do that? Do you, um, so you're, had you always wanted to be on TV? I know that's a shit question, but, uh. Well, there's no good sounding answer, but I'll tell you straight up. I always wanted to push my ideas out there and personality wise, I always liked attention. So whenever that gelled into something, I mean, I first went into politics directly and I've worked for two U.S. senators and I've worked on campaigns and I've done grassroots organizing. So I don't think my direction was only pursuing a platform. But, you know, you can go into politics for all kinds of reasons, but there is a certain confidence if you go into politics because you think your ideas are going to help or better than someone else's. Yeah, that's a certain type of desire to at least uh, get heard, at least affect change. So I didn't know it was going to be TV. I mean, I've spent the thing about TV that's funny is obviously it is so visible that you can get known. Let's say 10% of your time is on TV and 90% of your work is on something else. You can be so much better known for that 10%. So most of my journalism to date has been in writing. But clearly, I definitely get more people coming up because of TV. TV is powerful. Yeah, and for you, right? Yeah. You do all kinds of stuff. I'm not, some of it I can't even say you on the podcast. You could probably get booked at a comedy club just because you're right. Well, that's not my goal. But you, you probably have people who still come up to you from The Wrestler, right? Oh, thank you. <laughs> who, because that is the big screen, and they see that, and they think of you as that. That's their first thought of you, right, is being that creepy guy in the wrestler but that's not the focus of your comedy or even like the main way that you do your work yeah i mean there's time yeah being on tv or in a movie you could write like and you can do an hour and a half live show not that i've ever performed for an hour and a half and uh it could be perfect or great and then do three lines on tv and people that's what I go, now that's, that, that's something. That's something. And I think about when I when I used to do organizing, you know, I was in Iowa putting together precinct captain teams for John Kerry and the Iowa caucus. And you, we would work hard to get 40 people in a room and then have a guest speaker and then try to build out from there like any Amway project. You try to take those 40 people and bring three friends and you're building up. And that's how a lot of organizing works. But the amount of labor to get that message to those 40 people. And you compare that to TV where on an off day, right, at a random time, you've built in hundreds of thousands of people. Now, it's not the same. Obviously, you can come up with the caveats of the difference between person to person, etc. But I think about that having come from a non-TV background, having spent the vast bulk of my career in, in other areas, law, writing, and previously politics, that TV comes in with a built-in advantage in terms of sheer reach, that is pretty extraordinary. How are you? Um, how are you handling fame? Well, I don't have it. I mean, that's come on. I don't. No, you're I mean, on that, TV all, every day. Yeah, but I don't have any. I, I know. I do know some people who are famous, and I see what they deal with, and there's pros and cons to that. And uh, being, you know, being a TV journalist or a co-host at, at my. At my level, I don't have to deal with that at all, which I like, which is good. So you're telling me if you walked around in the West Village, let's say you had a suit on, so it was like you jumped off the TV screen, right? You wouldn't get stopped once. No, in, in an hour. No, I, I, I've, and I can say this again. One of the benefits of the John Barry podcast <laughs> is I've been around you. I've seen you, especially in your 
uh, natural ecosystem, <laughs> the uh, tortured Brooklyn subculture. And I've seen you have a bunch of people come up to you over and over, and you seem to have, and we can talk about this, you seem to have ambivalent feelings about it. Uh, I don't mind if they're nice. And that's not true. If they're nice, I, if they're I might nice. be uncomfortable. Your, your I, feeling, I your, your emotional valence. That that much. I, I've been with you and I've seen you've several. You've I've been with you and seen a bunch, like multiple people come up in one night, especially at a bar, and you seem mixed mixed about it. Well, there was that one woman who tried to get me to drink a glass of water, but we don't have to talk about her. <laughs> that was just that was, a, that was an unusual case. Uh, but yeah, so I don't have that at all, and I'm glad not to. Hmm. I would think you would. I'm just telling you the truth. See, I would... Wow. I would think you'd have people come out and go, like, arguing with you. No, and I... The only places I get it are subset. In other words, I don't... If you go to a conference or when I went to the Democratic Convention, more people come up. But I've chosen to walk into... That's like if you were, you know, a a Russian studies scholar and you go to the Russian studies conference and people come up to you. That's much more like being known in a field than what I think... Be like if I went to the Apple store or something. (laughs) <laughs> and I think that's what we, what is weird about fame is for people who are walking around living their lives and having that intimacy of people coming up feeling like they know you. Uh, and to bring it back to Gaffigan. Well, we didn't even mention Gaffigan. We mentioned Gaffigan off off screen. I, years off ago, camera. I love Jim Gaffigan uh, and the way he works. And years ago, I ran into him at uh, that Pravda bar downtown. And I went up and wanted like to get a picture. I said, can I get a picture with you? And he said, we were right in line for the bathroom. And he said, can I pee first? And I said, oh, sure, I'll wait right out here. And he goes, well, that's not creepy at all. And then went and went. So he got in like two jokes because he's naturally funny. Right. And we got the picture because I was that much into it. And that's the only reason I'm here, by the way. Uh, you want a picture? If you were, no, but if you were equally good at what you do in something besides stand-up comedy, I don't know that I would have come to your kitchen. Uh, but I love what stand-up comics do. I think it's one of the toughest ways to connect with people out there. Oh, I love when people say that. Because <laughs> then I go, yeah. I don't have, it's not like me going, God, I have the toughest job. But when other people say it, I go, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's not that bad. It's brutal. It is, it's not. It's, well, it's also what you're uh, inclined towards. How many, how many. Oh, turn in the tables. Here we how go. How many bad jokes are you allowed if you've been on a run of good jokes? You have not 10 good jokes. I hope a lot. How many bad jokes can you do? It seems, as an observer, it seems like three. Oh, three. You get ten good jokes. You own the audience. You're there. But, boy, you tell a couple of bad ones. It seems like, it seems like there's a very low margin for error. I, I've never told three bad jokes in one show. but You don't believe. No, I have. Um, you can kind of... Uh, if you've told ten in a row, then you'd miss... I mean, it'd be weird to tell three bad ones after building that momentum. You're, this, in law school, they call that fighting the hypothetical. You're talking about the probability that the scenario will occur, but you're, you've been asked to address the scenario itself. Okay. I don't mean to be that annoying. Well, actually, it wasn't really fighting a hypothetical, if you'd let me finish. <laughs> I know it's your job as a lawyer to cut people off when they're about to say something that will actually make sense. I think the people who listen to your podcast are now convinced that they never want to go to dinner with us. No, I'm saying in the hypothetical that you're talking about, yes. it would be unlikely after 10 jokes for three in a row to not work. So even if those three jokes are bad in your hypothetical, it would be, I think you'd have enough goodwill at that point. But 
having said that, I can do a set and then it's going well for 10 minutes and then boom, something doesn't work. Yeah. But that's more likely if you do something um, maybe brand new that's untested and you're kind of stuttering and stuff. So you around. feel like you know when you know how to dismount or stick the landing, then you know you're going to get some laughs because you know how well, to Well, also, goes. honestly, you should be having sets where you bomb because if you're working stuff out. It's like skiing. I've never skied, but sure. Ski- I won't fight the skiing like I fought the hypothetical. I always say life is more like life can be understood through sports. That's why everyone's always making sports analogies. That's basically why. And life is a lot closer to skiing than, you know, badminton or baseball. And then if you're doing it right, you're going to be falling down. Yeah. You know, good skiers fall. And you got to be ready to take those hits. Whereas if you're doing a sport where you generally look pretty good and you just you know, make a point or not, that's that's not really where you want to be. And you know, comedy seems like that because, boy, you see these guys up there, even the good ones, you see them up there. What's the funniest uh, subject? And can I have more seltzer? You want some more seltzer? You know, maybe we'll capture me actually opening my refrigerator. We don't have to edit this out. No, see if you can... Um. I don't know that there's... I mean, people probably... Put it right here and then pour it like it's one of those ads. If you said, you know, yell a subject out, right. the average person... Oh, look at that. Wait till we add effects to that. It's going to be really... Wait till you embed your video. Wait till I pour that on the microphone <laughs> and we're in the microphone. Um, I don't think there... I think any subject can be funny. Why is race so funny? Um, race... I don't do any racial stuff. Maybe I should start now that I know it's the funniest stuff. Well, I didn't think it was the funniest. Why don't you do any racial stuff? Because I don't want to get beaten up uh, by Jewish people. No, I'm joking. Uh, <laughs> I'm Jewish. I don't. I don't think I've ever done anything racial. Is that a conscious choice? But it, it is fun watching people ride that line where you're like, "Ooh, I'm surprised you're able to say that." You know, watch a white comic make jokes about black people in front of a, a black audience or an audience where there's a lot of black people and the audience loving it because they know he's not being actually cruel. Well, like the best, the best racial political joke in the 2008 race, which spoke to a core truth that everyone knew, but had been dressed up and danced around was when Chris Rock, this was during the primary, Chris Rock went out and he said, you know, I never heard anything about a superdelegate until a black guy was running for president. And people went nuts. And people thought it was really funny. And it was both a joke and, like, exaggerating the situation, but also spoke to a truth, which was that people understood Obama was facing all these weird hurdles. Superdelegate was probably not the most racialized hurdle, although it was certainly true that... Before his race, no one had heard about the prospect of overturning a majority of the Democratic delegate vote representing the public with some sort of veto by superdelegates. That was technically in the rules, but never come up. Now, you could go through that as soon as I start explaining it. It gets boring real quick. But Chris sort of went to the heart of it in a way that was like pushing the taboo, but also spoke to a real grievance. Right, and he probably went in and got out of it quickly, right? He didn't get too explicit. That was it. That was yeah. the whole thing. Um, let's talk about The Cycle, your new show. Not your new show. You're the new uh, 
Of kind of the opposite. The show has been on right. the air for about nine months, do, doing well in the ratings. Uh, it's on at 3 p.m. on MSNBC and has been co-hosted by Crystal Ball, Ture, Essie Cup, and Steve Kornacki. And MSNBC recently moved Steve up to a weekend show called Up with Steve Kornacki, which airs Saturday and Sunday at 8 a.m. I have to ask you about that. And Was, I, was and, he upset that he didn't get his own name for that, you think? No, honestly, it's funny. I think they're so excited, and I don't speak for Steve, yeah. but uh, I think it's fair to say they're so excited that Chris Hayes built something in the morning that is bigger than a person. And you, you know, Yeah, I guess it's like The Tonight Show with the new host. Well, that's going quiet. I mean, The Tonight Show is uh, America, right? Yeah. I mean, that's an old, old show. But I think for something new, they really built it into what, what Chris did do was create an intellectual conversation on Saturday mornings. It's different than a lot of what you see. And I think critics would concede that. I think everyone can see that. And you look at the scope and the depth that they do in talking about issues that are often ignored, whether it's a mass incarceration or how we balance the use of uh, robot drone killings with our national security goals, or when he convened every uh, New York mayoral candidate. And you mentioned Stop and Frisk earlier, Todd, and they had not a four-minute segment, but a, a deep conversation of how Stop and Frisk works as a policy and what these mayoral candidates think. I mean, that. so I, I really have no bones about, you know, paying a big tribute to that show. And so when Chris got promoted to do something a little different on in primetime, it made perfect sense to keep the brand of the show, although Steve's obviously going to also contribute in his own way. So to the cycle, when he did that, they asked me to come in. So I'm the new co-host, one of four, on that daily show. So it's three basically liberal people and Essie Cup, who's far right or right? Well, Essie Cup would tell you, I mean, I, I don't think, and everyone says this, but it's true. I don't think labels get you very far. First of all, they don't resolve anything because everyone just debates the label. Second of all, they don't have content, right? Uh, I'm an Eisenhower Republican on taxes, which means I think taxes should be way higher for the affluent based on my vision of funding the government and a just society. So a little while ago, that would have been a conservative position. Now it's a liberal one. So using the term doesn't get you very far. I think SC Cup, if you look at her positions, is very pro-Second Amendment and anti-gun regulation. And she's a hunter, and she's written about and spoken out on that issue. Um, but she's also written about being a conservative who's not, uh, you know, an observant religious conservative. Um, she has spoken out in favor of marriage equality. So if you are... If, if marriage equality is your issue, SE Cup is going to look better to you than a lot of other Republicans. Right. Um, but, yes, yeah, so she's, she's been conservative on certain things, but I would, I would look to the issue set. Uh, and then Teray and uh, Crystal ran uh, as a Democratic candidate for Congress. Um, and you, you can look at her platform and her positions. And Teray has a background as a music journalist, a cultural commentator. I wrote with Teray on... The MTV Video Music Awards, uh, it's got to be 15 years ago. You wrote? We wrote for, I think Chris Rock was hosting. and I uh, Really? Yeah. And there were a few sets of writers. I think he may have been a host writer. What was he writing about? Oh, you just... Was uh, he writing for Chris Rock? 
I don't remember because there's the host writer and then there's writers for the whole show and they, they would just be like, you know, Mira Sorvino is going to walk out with Kid Rock and we need some banter between those two. Can you script banter? That's like an existential Well, have question. you ever watched an awards show? Of course. I don't watch a lot of awards shows. But if you, it's clearly poorly scripted. Okay. <laughs> you know, you just see And that was the joke. And then it's, it's uncomfortable. Yeah. It is actually better if they just wing it, but I think some people aren't comfortable doing that. They worry about what will happen. I think if you're not a you know a comedian, can go out there and probably just wing it, or someone with the. But if you're just always used to reading someone's lines, or maybe you don't think it's your strength, you think, "Oh, the comedy guy's going to write you something," and then you go out there. Where do you come down on the whole uh, recording stand-up shows and <laughs> holding? comedians accountable should every local show be subject to the fact that people have the ability to record you uh are you talking about like controversies like blog posts uh well i first of all any um summation or report or summary of a show written by a blogger is probably wrong or has some huge factual errors Anyone who's ever done a recap of a show, and not even someone who's like complaining about it, yeah. gets huge things wrong. So I would never just read, oh, this blogger said this, comedian said this, so therefore this guy's a terrible person. Um, yeah, I don't, I, I think a lot of times, and I'm not going to maybe get too specific about which comedian we're talking about or which comedians I could talk about, but I think a lot of times there are things that in the room, don't feel bad, but if they're reported, it sound horrifying. Mm-hmm. And I think that includes jokes that people make in conversation, jokes that maybe you and I would make. Do you if think this microphone wasn't on? Is it fair game for a comedian to say, "Look, uh, I don't want any recording of this"? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I think. Well, I, that's since concerts began. I mean, way before there were cell phones, there were always signs up saying, "Don't record, don't record." Right. And now that it's just so easy. That everyone is not on their own camera, but with a video camera. Right. Um, but I think, I think that the tide is turning a little bit. You know what? I'm going to retract that. I'm going to say, I think that if you tell an audience, like the Yeah, Yeah, Yeah has just put a sign up in front of their concert. I don't know if you saw it, Mm-mm. but it kind of went around social media where they are like, don't watch our show through the lens of a camera. Please shut that off. And I think they were lauded for that. And I've seen shows where, like, Louis Gunn made announcements. Why don't you just watch the show? And then people went, yeah, that's right. We should just watch the show. We're here. Like, as opposed to, yeah, I've had people hold up, like, a Blackberry. And you're like, is that really? You're, like, in the third row, and you're looking at me through a Blackberry. Right. Why? Well, that's two things. Doesn't that just hurt your arm? You right. Just- that part of feeling like they want to experience it through that is it's a special type of tick. It's like when people want their own picture of the Mona Lisa. Not even them posing in front of it, but their own picture of the Mona Lisa. And you're like, you know, you can get a a really high-quality professional shot of that in the gift shop and a postcard or on the Internet like or anywhere, like your version of it. But they want to feel like they're taking it. I'm also thinking, though, about Louis C.K. chiding people for, you know, taking what should be a creative or more agile space and turning it into... A press conference, because if it's a national press conference, every time you perform, it seems like it'd be harder to be loose and funny. Yeah, it's 
Exactly. And everyone says things that if they were pulled out of context would look shittier. But it's like what I was saying earlier about the uh, white comics selling jokes to a black audience. There's things that if I said, oh, I heard this guy say this, and there were black people in the audience, people would go, oh, I could start, I could ruin people's lives. But if you were actually there, you go, oh, okay, this is just saying something crazy, and everyone's enjoying it, and no one's hurt, and no one's being insulted, except possibly, you know, a white person. Well, it's an NYU student or something. You're talking about the difference between context and content. Mm -hmm. And you can take the same sentence about, say, your rabbi, and if you said it in the synagogue or in his presence or in the synagogue bulletin, it would be seen as within a certain community context. If you went outside the community, the same content, absent that context of some notion of cooperation or some good fit in a complaint to the paper might play out very differently for the people involved, which isn't, by the way, an objective or moral judgment. It is a normative judgment that depends on the context of the situation. I mean, the the thing that I'm always reminded of with Louis C.K. is that, you know, to this day, the Supreme Court doesn't allow cameras, video cameras, in the oral arguments. Because the oral arguments are a certain process. They're part of the judicial process. And while they are public in the sense that the content is recorded in a transcript and becomes part of the record, and other courts look to that in addition to the final written ruling, which is binding, it is not assumed, in fact, it's just, you know, they disagree with the notion that once it's public, then any medium is equal. They have made a sophisticated and very much thought out and debated decision not to let the video in. Because, again, while the content is already out there, the words are available, they think the, the video, particularly anything that would be live or real-time, would corrupt the work that they're doing, the work they're doing on their stage. You think, is it the reason that it would inhibit them? Just like um, looking at a camera as opposed to focusing on what I'm supposed to be arguing? It could inhibit. It could distort. It creates a counterweight for them. And this is why I don't think this is just a goofy analogy. I actually think there's some things in common. Because the work they're doing in the questioning of those attorneys is designed to get them certain types of answers. That is, their words are doing work. But ripped out of the context of the people in that room and presented in a way that is exciting, transcripts ultimately don't attract that much heat, although they're there for you if you care. Video, as we know, is different. And so the work they're trying to do to get somewhere would then have a much stronger countervailing force of people who would hear the soundbite, misunderstand it, create public pressure, backlash, criticism, the natural human reaction to that, even if you have tenure, as they do, even if you have one of the most permanent jobs that exists, the natural reaction they recognize would be potentially to, yes, inhibit or be careful or use euphemisms or change your words. The work that they're doing would change. And for what positive good? Their view is we've already made the content public. We don't need to have a medium agnostic. Because they would feel like they were talking to everyone in the world as opposed to just the lawyer. Right. They perceive correctly that the video would travel much farther and faster than the words on paper. And and so while the point of the analogy is 
the downside or what you might call the externality of the publication medium. The, they're obviously not analogous with regard to what they're doing because what you do doesn't matter. <laughs> and what they do matters a great deal. But that, that notion, which I think is very interesting because they've been under tremendous pressure from people who I think rather simplistically are like, well, it's already out. It's already text. You already got it. Why can't you show the video? Then people could see the whole thing. Um, you know, which again goes to your theory of disclosure, but more disclosure isn't always more knowledge. If I give you a well-drafted one-page summary of what you need to know about your cell phone contract and whether you should sign it, that might help you and give you more knowledge than a disclosure rule that says you get the 14-page fine print jargon-filled contract, right? Cast Unseen in his new book, Simpler, talks a lot about this in the regulatory context. Like, you, you don't need everything. You need a reliable set of highlights or priorities or the bottom line for you. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's a bit of that question there where people say, oh, well, more is better and everyone can just use the video if they want or the text if they want or whatever. Um, it's just funny because you're in a modern world where, you know, your obligation is only to the audience in the room, but your pressures are much bigger. Well, it's different for comedians, and I don't think people understand is that, that and a lot of people have talked about it, is that you might be working something out that's not ready yeah. to go beyond that room or not ready for something to get 800,000 hits. Yeah, or that the misfire on your joke doesn't reflect a truth or something you want to share, right? That, I mean, in the journalism context, the version would be something might go from you to an editor and be a first draft, but no one should ever see it. Although historians or someone someday might be really interested in that, it's got to go through iterations before it's out. Yeah, I've had people talk, ask about like a Comedy Central special. Like, you're going to release the complete uncut thing. I'm like, I'm not going to release eight minutes where I just fucked around. Right. And it wasn't funny. Why, why would I do that? Just because you're curious? Well, and there's so much... On live show, you'll watch me bomb. That raises another issue, which is there's so much of your work that's available that already isn't funny. I know that. I know that. See what I did there? I see, yeah, you insulted me. That's, what you did. <laughs> that's pretty obvious what you did there. Um, maybe we should end with you insulting me. That would be good. Or start talking about your sweater again. No, I think that's a good place. Um, is there anything you're going to write a book? Maybe. I'm not currently writing a book. No, it seems like a nightmare writing a book. Gaffigan wrote a book. How'd that do? I read a 29-page escort. Uh, escort. Excerpt. Ooh, what did I say escort for? Should we tell our favorite Jim Gaffigan jokes? No, no. He's already got a whole episode dedicated. I love when he's like, you ever see those people at the gym who are just totally fit? And you want to be like, you're done. Go home. Ari Melber does Jim Gaffigan. <laughs> Now I'm going to have to call Jim Gaffigan and see if it's cool with having you. I can't believe you asked for his autograph as he was going to the book. Not autograph, just photo. <laughs> and I wouldn't normally, because again, now I've told two stories like this, but like the vast majority of the time, and look, when you work, I get to work in, you know, 30 Rockefeller, you see people come by all the time. You don't stop them. They do whatever. If it's special though, for me, stand up is one example. Uh, then I'm like, I'm going in. Uh, Another great Gaffigan is, uh, I mean, I know comics hate it when you do this, but no, when ahead. he's like, and then you see these, uh, they put the workout machines on the lobby level of the health club right up against the glass. He's like, who wants, 
Who wants that? Nobody wants to be on either side of that window. I got you. <laughs> you ate it when I do this. We just talked about how taping someone's act current and having you do it with no audience <laughs> to a comedian. We could do a little like, icy comedian. I think that's a little the ding ding. All right, Ari. Let me see if there's anything. I have a little list here now. Da, da, da. Ari, I think that's it. If I uh, have any other questions, I will. I'll text you and I will read out loud what you say. Uh, let me say this. I've never done an interview like this. It was pretty bad, right? I've never been in a podcast studio like this. Was it a bad interview? Because I'm kind of like, I was like a few times like, oh man, I'm out of my league. I think it's fine interview. I mean, it's not, I mean, interview's probably the wrong term. Yeah. It's more of a back and forth, which is cool. Right. That's what you're fostering. It's not like Dick, what's, what's David Gregory talking to you. It's just a different form. I mean, I've been all over a few of those things that I kind of laid back on. Are you trying to be the next Mark Maron? Uh, yeah. Why not? It's doing well. Well, there you go. Hey, everyone, that's our show. I hope you enjoyed it. Follow Ari Melber on Twitter, A R I M E L B E R. Follow me on Twitter at Todd Barry. I have some upcoming tour dates. May 26th, I'll be in Burlington, Vermont. Uh, 6, 12 to 15, June 12 to 15th, I'll be in Chicago at the Just, the Just for Last Festival. Then I'll be at Caroline's July 11th through 14th. You can save $10 on the Thursday and Sunday shows by using code TODDB. Also, I want to thank Feral Audio. You should go to feralaudio.com. They have lots of great podcasts, not just this one. They have Chelsea Pretty, Neil Hamburger, uh, Brody Stevens, Duncan Trussell, Steve Agee. I'm not going to name all of them. Thanks for listening. There's also Todd Barry Podcast at gmail.com. All righty. Bye. Up to 70% off. That's right. At Court Furniture Clearance Center. Get up to 70% off new retail prices and choose from a wide variety of previously leased furniture and decor for your home or office. Sofas from $199.99. Bedroom sets from $399.99. Dining sets from $299.99 and more. All items are court certified, guaranteed, and in stock, ready for delivery or to take home today. Make the smart choice and visit one of our five locations in the DMV or go online at courtclearancefurniture.com. Mention Radio 20 and get 20% off.